You're listening to the Deepening Your Practice podcast with George Haas. For more information, visit www.metagroup.org. That's www.mettagroup.org. So welcome, everybody. This is Deepening Your Practice. Deepening Your Practice is intended as an intermediate or advanced class. And with that really means is that I'm not going to give basic meditation instruction. I expect you already to know that. That being said, if you find that I'm talking about something and you don't understand what I'm talking about, I'm happy to answer any questions. I'm just not going to cover the basics. We're going slowly through the Manual of Insight, the new translation of the Mahasi Sayadaw text by the Vipassana Meta Foundation. And we're in a <clears throat> in the uh, chapter called Development of Mindfulness. And we are looking at um, the arising and non-arising of mental defilements. What what page are you on? It's uh, page 152. So, the English language, um, out of the traditional um, Pali language, we have uh, interesting constructs like mental defilements. arising and non-arising of them. Um, And if you recall, the way that we've been talking about this is uh, looking primarily at sensing first. Um, What we're really talking about in some sense is uh, the fixation of the sensing experience into something. And then in the fixation of the sensing experience into something, the uh, defilements or hindrances arise in relationship to the content of the thing that we make out of the sensing experience. So at first we have the the capacity to sense, uh, then we have the object that can be sensed, then there's contact between the two, and then the uh, awareness of the consciousness of the sensing experience arises. We both know that the, there's an activation of the particular sense sphere and we know the quality of the sensing experience as pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral. And then the conditioned content response to the sensing experience attaches. And in the attachment of that uh, is the moment when the defilements of mind can arise. This would be simply craving, aversion, unconsciousness, or equanimity. If the experience isn't fixated, if the sensing experience isn't fixated, then there's no possibility for the defilements to attach or the conditioning to attach. Uh, Another way to put that would be that you you would be in a a flow state or a a no-self state, and there wouldn't be uh, that uh, fixation. So preference would be a a fixation, right? Preference would be a fixation. And then we begin to understand that all of the suffering that we experience comes from this fixation and the the lack of, uh, um, uh, if we're going to use defilement, then we can use purity as well, purity of mind. When a defilement arises in connection with sight, it arises at the moment of seeing based on a distinct object that we see, When there is no distinct object and it is not known, the defilement does not arise. Uh, Affection or hate for a certain person only arises because you have previously met or seen the person. It may also happen due to hearing about the person from someone else. Let's assume that you have neither met this person nor heard about him or her. You don't even know that this person exists on the planet. Because this person is neither distinct to your mind nor do you know him or her, it is impossible for affection or hate to arise in your mind with respect to him or her. The same follows for for a form that you have neither seen in the past nor presently nor have ever imagined. Uh, Such a visible form uh, is like a woman or a man who lives in a village, town, country, celestial realm, or other universe that you have never visited before. Because there is no such visible form uh, obviously present in your mind, greed, hatred, and other defilements cannot arise with respect to it, This is why at the request of a monk, the Buddha gave meditation instructions by raising questions as follows. What do you think? Do you have any desire, lust, or affection for these forms cognizable by the eye that you have not seen and never heard before that you do not see and would not think might be seen? 
And then the monk answers no. Is that making sense pretty clearly? This, is, this seems pretty straightforward. If you don't sense it, you can't have a uh, craving aversion or unconsciousness or equanimous response to it. Um, it's certainly easy to get enraged by hearsay or gossip, but then it would have to be somebody that you've already attached some conditioned meaning to in order for that to happen. If we don't know, for instance, who lives directly across the alley, it's very hard to have any kind of uh, affection or hatred arise for them without seeing them or knowing them. Having seen a form with mindfulness muddled, uh, tending to the pleasing sign, one experiences it with an infatuated mind and remains tightly holding on to it. Many feelings flourish within, originating in the visual form, covetousness, and annoyance as well, by which the mind becomes disturbed. For one who accumulates suffering thus, nirvana is said to be far away. Accumulates suffering, Jesus. <laughs> it's poetry. <laughs> this verse explains that one cannot attain nirvana if one lacks mindfulness at the time of seeing. The phrase attending to the pleasing sign indicates that unwise attention leads to desire. The phrase with mindfulness muddled means that one fails to be mindful of visible forms as they really are impermanent, unsatisfactory, and not self. The phrase, one experience it with infatuated mind, implies also to the cases that he hates it if it is undesirable or ignores it if it is delusional. Uh, if in a delusional mind, if it is neutral. When fully mindful, one sees a form. When it's not inflamed by lust for forms, one experiences it with a dispassionate mind and does not remain holding it tightly. One fares mindfully in such a way that one, that even as one sees the form and while one undergoes a feeling, suffering is exhausted and not built up. For one dismantling suffering thus, nirvana is said to be close. <clears throat> So we watch the process and we touch into sensing. We know that the sensing experience is pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral. And then we're aware of the mind fixating it into something that we know. We are householders and so we need to be able to function in the world, which may be different than a monastic pursuit or a pursuit that we might, be, might experience ourselves on retreat, something like that. Um, Mindfulness is a word that means awareness of the present moment. If you look at, for instance, the Satipatthana Sutta and its description of what meditation is, there are four aspects of meditation. Um, the first is uh, sensory clarity or clearly knowing. Uh, the second, or actually the first one is energy, ardency. Um, so too much energy in the mind becomes agitated, not enough energy in the mind becomes slothful. Uh, so you want to be balancing the energy of the mind and then uh, you want to see clearly what, what's being experienced. If you remember in the uh, descriptions earlier in the book, what is easy and obvious is the, the level of uh, discernment that you need, the level of clarity that you need in terms of that. Mindfulness is an awareness of the present moment and you need to be concentrated enough um, that uh, you're present for these kinds of experiences arising. So in the description that the, the Satipatthana Sutta makes of what meditation is, that's the basic um, um, way that you want to orient the mind. And then in the refrain of the, of the um, Satipatthana Sutta, which is repeated, 17 times throughout the Sutta, it describes the way of investigating. So the first is to um, notice the rising and passing of each sensory experience. The second is to be aware of, uh, so mindfulness of self, which is the internal experience, and mindfulness of outside, which is the external experience. 
and then mindful of the interaction of the interior and exterior experience. And then the last one is a bare awareness, so that it isn't necessary to experience everything all of the time, it's only necessary to experience enough of the experience of the present moment. And that in Vipassana, V means to divide and Pasana means to see that we begin to pull apart experience. So we take a complex experience and we pull it apart into its pieces and in seeing clearly one at a time each of the individual pieces that come together to make uh, a fixated experience of self and world, we can infer that in knowing one aspect of an experience that in order for that experience to be present all of the other aspects need to be present for that to happen but we don't need to experience them all at the same time. So then we have this idea of how do we move through the world with this bare level of attention, this, this enough, uh, uh, enough of mindfulness that we can see these uh, processes arise. <clears throat> do you notice the mind states that's there? Do you notice when you're angry, when you're peaceful, when you're happy, when you're excited, all of these things? And can you see that uh, the, this whole process is unfolding in each of those moments, that you sense it, there's a quality of the sensing experience. If you don't have awareness of the quality of the sensing experience, sometimes something that's unpleasant to sense can color the thing that you make it into. That, that the thing that it becomes is an unpleasant experience because the experiencing of it purely as a sensing phenomena is unpleasant. Um, when you begin to have insight into the difference between the Vedna aspect and the mind aspect or feeling tone aspect and mind aspect, you may notice that you can have a neutral, unpleasant experience or a pleasant uh, craving experience or you can be equanimous even with unpleasant sensing experiences. Is that all making sense? And then can you notice when the craving, aversion, unconsciousness and equanimity aspect attaches to the, the sensing experience that you make? So in terms of, an, of, of a meditation practice, the exploration that I like to recommend is the triple noting. Uh, so the first note is for the uh, clearly knowing or the sensory clarity of which sense gate is activated in the moment. The second is to note for the Vedana or the feeling tone. And then the third note is to note whether you're craving aversive, uh, unconscious, or you're actually uh, in equanimity with the experience. So the initial way of addressing the content as we form it. <laughs> In, mm -hmm. So it's like so. We try to get to a place where we're mindful enough of everything that arises, so that we can sort of see if there's a fixation, and try to detach from that fixation. Trying to get to a neutrality as opposed to having any type of vagina, even. Um. <laughs> or not quite. Like it's like, like early intervention. I would characterize it differently than that. We want to be free to fixate or not fixate. That would be freedom. So there isn't a preference between fixating and not fixating. You can't really function as a householder if you don't fixate anything because you're just flowing in no self, right? There's nothing solid. You wouldn't be able to understand the content of language consciously in that state you would probably not find any motivation to move. <laughs> you know? If you remember Eckhart Tolle's story, he had a deep experience of no-self stream entry and he uh, sat on a park bench for six weeks, unable to figure out what to do, or finding no motivation to do anything else. I think that Shinzen would describe uh, a, a deeply enlightened person as somebody who could drop into cessation whenever they wanted to and then in the snap of a fingers manifest a brilliant sense of self. Um, 
a brilliant sense of self would be the sense of self that's fully capable of doing whatever the task is at hand. You could be operating completely from a place of no self in doing that. I think that that would be this description of the spontaneous arising. I know that in the, the mentoring work I do, if I get into a, 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 a deep a concentrated state often, I'm unsure what my response will be, but I've been doing it for long enough that I'm willing to just trust the spontaneity, the complete spontaneity of, of my response without needing to pre-filter it through the sense of self. Do you, do you have a mind being clear about that? Sometimes we let the response that we would have arise and then we examine it before we let it come out into the world and that would be a kind of filtering process. But when you become, become deeply spontaneous and free, in a sense, you simply go directly out into the world and, and hope that it's skillful. <laughs> but what I find is that there's a deep preference in, in the people I work with for the spontaneous response and that the filtered one is much less effective in terms of tuning to them and, and actually addressing uh, no self to no self may be a way of doing it. It's just a way of no self-consciousness really just being spontaneous in that way. Um, and to do it enough that you, you, you have a sense of uh, security in being completely spontaneous. <laughs> um, particularly if we had early conditioning where that was suppressed or unwelcome we become very inhibited around the capacity to just be bouncy and spontaneous. I, I need to go sit with Shinzen because he's relanguaged this and what is it? Uh, it's, um, uh, the spontaneity labels of, of walking with the bounce or whatever. Auto. Auto. It's all auto. Yeah. So if you can move into auto and not be in um, in, trapped in self, if you look at it from a neuroscience basis, auto is 11 processing 11 million bits per second, self is processing 16, which is going to be more in tune. It's just, it's pretty basic. Uh, you know, uh, you call the resting state? Is that or? A resting state? No, I would think of as differently, okay. but um, it is. Um, there's a kind of confidence that comes, and mostly it comes from practicing, just being spontaneous. Um, we can get quite inhibited in, 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 in suppressing that, um, quite self-conscious. You know, everybody, when I use the phrase self-conscious, has a sense of this dampening quality that a big arising of self can have, um, joy and everything else. <laughs> The willingness to be authentic. Um, so, in some sense, what we're practicing huh, to do is that the, is the spontaneity energy or that's arising. Would that also be equivalent to wisdom? Or I would say it, yes. Okay. So, uh, there's a book called Blink. Do you know it? Mm -hmm. It's about subliminal subliminal processing, and one of the experiments in it was that they had a, a group of, one group go up and look at a wall of toasters, maybe 20 different kinds of toasters, and they were told to just look at the wall and pick a toaster, and then take it home and use it for a week and rate their satisfaction with it. And then the other group was told to read every single box and to make a deliberate decision about which toaster to buy and then use it for a week and write their level of satisfaction. Can you guess which group had a significantly higher level of satisfaction with their toaster? It was the group that simply looked at the wall of toasters and picked one, not the group that deliberated. Because 11 million bits per second uh, is, a, is a lot of bits, and 16 bits for minutes is still not even close to that initial response. So that you want to move out of that limited identity into the, that spontaneous sense of self and operate from there. Uh, 
So part of this process then in, in the meditation is to begin to, to recognize these mind states as you fixate them around the, the experience. If we know something, we've created a working model of it internally, and that's what we remember. The conditioning attaches in that way. We don't remember details. We don't remember, for instance, if you remember a conversation that you had with somebody, you don't actually remember the conversation. You remember what it meant to you. And at that, you remember a gist of what it meant to you. So when you, play it back in the mind in the present moment, you are creating in the present moment the dialogue that's running in your head and it may or may not match closely to the dialogue that actually happened depending on what your mind state was when you recorded it. Each time you remember it, you, uh, you know what it means to you in the moment of remembering and that is added to it so that the next time you remember it, it is the uh, gist of the original event plus the gist of every time you've remembered in it what it meant to you in each of those moments. So if you remember something that happened to you when you were eight years old and you've remembered it 10,000 times, <laughs> you have this meaning which has been varied over a whole lifetime and may or, not, may or, not, may or may not be anywhere resembling what happened. Have you ever um, had a conversation with somebody about something that happened and their perspective of it is quite different than the one that you have? And then sometimes their, their perspective is similar to what you have. So it's a, the recording devices uh, or the, the quality of the recording because the gists are very stable. Um, really, we, we want to shift out of this idea that we know what happens to us uh, to the place of, we know what it meant to us. We don't know what happened. We're not designed to know what happened, we're designed to know what it meant to us, and it could mean anything. This is where the, the difficulty comes in. If you made a memory when you were five years old, you no longer have a five-year-old body to play it in. So you're playing a five-year-old memory in a body that is completely different than what it was when you made the recording. The way memory works is it recreates in the body the same kinds of sensations that you recorded in the gist and then you reinterpret them in the moment in the body that you have now. So that's really what's happening. Um, and so that fixation around a particular attitude or identity uh, in the memory can also comes, comes in as a mind state. And so if we can watch all of that happening and understand uh, um, what's there, then we're actually experiencing what's there. And if we get caught up into the, the content of it and we believe that the content is actually the experience of it, we are not seeing what's there. Is that making sense? <laughs> So the, the idea in Vipassana meditation is to see clearly what's actually there. And what's actually there is this um, experience only of the present moment. There's no way to experience the past. There's no way to know um, what the future will be. We are not experiencing the past when we're remembering something. We're experiencing the present moment, remembering something that happened before. This is where we want to really get, get into. And then we're, this uh, equates to a great freedom of being because we're not confined by these tight little containers that we, we can create in the mind of who we are, and what we're capable of, and what other people are like. Um, and these views um, of self and world, so this is inside and outside, right, can be quite, quite restricting in terms of what we do. If we believe ourselves to be incapable, we don't try in that spontaneous way in that moment to do, to do the thing, and we are self-limiting, which is self-reinforcing of the view that we're incapable. 
if we think other people are unreliable and dangerous and we don't engage them, then we miss out on the experience of what they might really be like and we're just in this idea of them, not in the actual experience of them. You do have to keep yourself safe. I'm not suggesting that you don't, but I'm suggesting that really this, this deep understanding of what it is that's happening is the thing that we're paying attention to, which is that you are sensing it, that there's a quality to the sensing, and then you make it into something, and in the process of making it into something, defilements or uh, mind states that distort the perception of the present moment can happen, and that you need to pay attention to what they are so that you can tell whether or not the experience that you're having of the present moment is actually reflecting the present moment. There's a lot, lot in all that, but it's, it's like, I think of that, what you were just saying as, is, as um, attaching the narrative to the emotion. Mm -hmm. The emotion arises, the physical, it's physical. Right. <clears throat> you know, and then, then it's either pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral, but it's still just physical. It's just right. the pulse rate goes up, you know, whatever face flushes, something happens physically, now my self attaches a narrative to it from, from memory. Right. And one and at that point you're already done. It's over. You, Pattern you, recognition. Yeah, happens. You're already, you're already <laughs> and so so sort of what I mean Shinson's got this big thing he says is spontaneity. He tries to teach it this is Auto walks and the thing about, about the bounce, the Zen bounce, teach the Zen bounce, or, or whatever. You know, and I keep saying this: it's an output, it's not an input. That, that what about the Zen Watusi? <laughs> he's a little old for the Zen. He's not as old as he used to be. He's sitting far too long in full lotus. He can barely get off of the cushion. Board, it takes him a long time to stand up. Unsatisfactoriness and not self that you begin, hopefully, my experience of it is that you begin to weaken that feedback loop. Right. And and as that feedback loop starts to weaken, so does the sense of self. Because it because self is fed off memory. It's only it's nothing but memory. Self cannot be anything but memory. Right. And so once you start to break down that feedback loop and catch it, uh, maybe deliberately at first and Gradually, then the mind learns that it's not, it doesn't help. It's not satisfactory to go down that rabbit hole to stop doing it. Right. And so it starts to do automatically. And that's where the auto begins to happen, is when it becomes automatic and, and spontaneous. And then the quality of it being more uh, authentic or, um, or, or just you know, kind of life supportive in general comes from self not being in there to mess it up. Right. And it has, it has a tendency to be naturally, um, um, the, the action that, come, that comes from it is more right action just naturally because you're not bringing all of that distorted stuff from the past into it. But the trick is how to do that. How to, how, and so I'm, how we're going to do it tonight is by <laughs> triple noting. <laughs> So first we're going to note for, oh, did you have a question? Good. Um, since you, you brought up uh, your experience early in life was of people being dangerous and so forth, um, then you will see the world that way. And so I guess my question is, if, if that was uh, a person's experience and they have that pattern later on in life of continuing to be attracted to and attract uh, dangerous people because it has become it's a sense of familiarity with this practice does that eventually as you start to sort of shift perception and see things does that are you able to navigate certain situations a little bit better so that uh, I'm, I'm not sure if I'm articulating your question right um, I think so um, what I would suggest is that there's a there's a split between what people say and what they do and that that's what needs to be repaired you need to constantly be um, 
trust and verify, I think, was what Ronald Reagan used to say. <laughs> We're equal opportunity, yeah. Uh, <laughs> um, in ch ch in, ch in uh, childhoods where the caregiver is unreliable, you begin to, to, to disconnect what they do from what they say because the anxiety of having an unreliable caregiver is so difficult to manage. It's easier to accept what they do and be disappointed than it is to be worried that, that you have an unreliable caregiver for a child. But what happens is you split off what, what people do from what they say they're going to do, and so you don't have any red flags going off when those two don't match. So in some sense, this is an empathetic experience. The, the three levels of empathy, the first is to, to have a visceral sense of the experience of someone else's physical pain. The second is to be able to read them facial expressions and body language to know what, that that's reflective of their interior state. And the third is to actually compassionately, empathetically connect to them so that you can feel what's actually happening for them. And we compare the second and the third and we believe that somebody's being authentic if they match. Again, this is not the most reliable system, but it is the system that we have. But you need, if, if you have that match and you think that they're, that, that they're being authentic with you, but you've split off what they actually do, then you're not making the last step of comparing what they say with what they do. So that's where that repair is. Um, it, people who had uh, frightening or dangerous or traumatic childhood suspect the motivation of everybody that they encounter. And the way that you begin to trust again is by comparing what they say they're going to do with what they do and if they match then you find that they they're trustworthy and if they don't match then they're not trustworthy but for many children who had uh, traumatic experiences as childhood with the the what they do split off there's no comparison and and it's just the experience of empathy the the presentation and the feeling, the felt sense of them, if they match, you accept that, that, that that's it. And without that comparison to what they do, you're constantly, uh, in some sense, exploitable. Is that making sense? Wait, explain the last part again. If you... You're, you're empathizing with... You, you're, you're reading their body language and their presentation mm -hmm. and you're comparing it to your felt sense of them. And if they match, you believe them. But if you leave off the last step of comparing it to what they do, then you can be exploited because you'll believe them and you'll go along with them. And you'll, you won't have a red flag because you've split off what they do. Can you give an example? Um, um, Is it narcissistic manipulator? Right. Anyone that you've encountered plays off your emotion to take advantage of you. You're not seeing, you're not attaching a, a, an outcome that you've learned to understand what their motivations are, so you just almost trust them through empathy. I can give you an example from my early life. I grew up in a violent home, and so in my early relationships, I would experience a violent response from somebody that I'd picked and I wouldn't end the relationship because they would assure me that it, it wasn't going to happen to me again. And I would accept that because I believed what they were saying, which didn't prevent it from happening again. So I had to make a, a hard rule. One incident of violence and the relationship is over and not repairable. That's kind of how I roll with that. Or can I borrow 50 bucks and then I'll pay back and then instead of paying back they say can I borrow 20 bucks <laughs> <laughs> and what if it's more you have to compare what they do with what they say they're going to do and if they don't match you need to have a red flag go off 
and, and put them in the category of unreliable. And does this practice sort of help to see the situations a little bit more clearly so that there is more of the pause, if you will, or more of... Well, to recognize that off. you're believing what they're saying because there's craving there, right? Mm -hmm. That would be one way to do it. So, get the solution, one solution to the problem you're suggesting is to learn to compare what people do with what they say. But how does that connect back to what we were just talking about a few minutes ago about, about self, about the drop-off in the, in the power of self to delude us that actions become spontaneously um, more um, correct, life-supportive, or, or less, less problematic. I don't see, one is a very deliberate, I'm going to, okay, now I'm going I'm to be really attentive when Right. So something, I'm going to check them out. Right. See what they did. It. And the other is somehow. So open to the whole experience is is the addition of what they do and not the, the confinement. Know, but the, my question is how does that strategy tie back to the notion that that somehow with breaking these feedback loops um, leads to, to spontaneously. Um, there's a word I'm, I'm looking for here that I don't have. Okay. Um, but I'm using terms like life-supporting the correct, um, authentic. The, um, part of the view of somebody who accepts uh, the unacceptable is that there won't be anything else, and so that they have mm -hmm. to take it. And so it would also be dis dispensing of that. The, this, the spontaneous knowing that that's not acceptable and there's nothing yet there to replace it, but still I'm going to move in the direction of it. But those notions come from memory. Those are held beliefs that, that get applied then. And so it seems like if, you, if, if we're learning to break, the, break down this reliance on memory to constantly construct a self that says, so, so self is, is playing some game here internally where it's convincing itself that this person's going to be okay right. even though they're not. So somehow there has to be a way to break that without necessarily going through life in this hyper-vigilant state of checking everybody out all the time. I mean, it's, it's exhausting. And you won't always get it right, either. So you can go down a different rabbit hole trying to do that all the time. Some kind of cutting it off at the beginning. It strikes well, me that the whole meditation process is, is an attempt, really, to cut it off before we get to that hyper-vigilant need. Um, I don't actually experience it as hyper-vigilance. I experience it more as being present for what it is without, without the defilements preventing the experience of the present moment. So that would be... Well, I don't want to pursue I mean, too far here, but, but for things like PTSD, like if you've got a, a really traumatic history that, that, and you've got PTSD-type symptoms as an adult, it's very hard to catch this stuff whether you be hypervigilant or not, you don't, even, you don't even know what's going on. I mean, well, you would need to recognize the arousal state of the mind, of the brain, which would be uh, essentially uh, just another object. I, I talk about it in the same way in terms of um, attachment. Um, uh, preoccupied, a preoccupied brain hyperactivates, and you can recognize the state of hyperactivation you can recognize the distortion in the perception of the present moment that the hyperactivation causes. You can learn um, skills to address the hyperactivation because you're likely to have the hyperactivation because that's actually the physical structure of your brain. So that you don't believe the content of the experience, you, you recognize what's actually happening and then ha know what skillful response to make in response to it. Um, you know, a hyperactivating mind is one, a deactivating mind is one, both hyperactivating and deactivating at the same time is another, and then a brain that doesn't do either is, 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 an, is another possibility based on your conditioning. <clears throat> if your brain hyperactivates, it completely distorts the, the perception of everything, and then you would know that that, that was what was happening. 
the hyperactivation of the brain itself is different than the hyperactivation of the emotional system, which would then layer on top of that, right? So really, it's just this clarity of what's actually happening so that you can base your decisions for action on what's actually happening. And if you, you, if you allow them to just come from this wisdom mind or this spontaneity, then you have the whole system working. And if you don't, and you confine yourself to the limited identity, then you have this very small piece operating. Can you have uh, a selflessness in a hyperactive or deactivated mindset? Sure. You can. Then you're just there and knowing that I'm deactivated. You're not believing the content of the deactivation, which would be that you don't value the relationships. So you would prevent yourself from taking action that would suggest that you you don't value the relationship. Does that make sense? Or like just something very. Uh, <laughs> so you're saying you don't have to. Old age citizen. <laughs> <laughs> I said, old age sickness and death. Is there some way to get out of this? And yes, there is. <laughs> <laughs> it's um, so you can have, but isn't, isn't it a fixed state to be hyperactive? I mean, isn't there a fixation involved in the state of hyperactivity? Um, well, you okay. can't think your way out of it. Maybe that's one way to put it. You have to come in through the body in order mm -hmm. to get it to change. So that's why meditation is a good thing for this, because you can come at it through the body. With PTSD also, you have to come in at it through the body. You can't think your way out that's, of it. This is, I was just thinking when you were describing that, that it's analogous to what I was talking about with emotion right. and breaking the feedback loop. It's the same, it's the same thing with, with this, uh, what you're talking about now, which is if you if you catch it before the narrative gets attached to it. You feel it, you sense it, it's there, right. but, you, but the narrative doesn't grab it. Doesn't hijack it. Yeah, it hijacks it. So in some sense what we're talking about then is this basic idea of the Buddhist idea of ultimate versus conceptual. And it, it is a constant rock, I like to think of it almost as a rocking motion. You rock back into the sensing experience and then you see what you've made out of it. Rock back into the sensing experience and see what you so you don't run when you lose awareness of the sensing experience you lose awareness of any distortion that you might build into it so that you have to really begin to train the mind to be constantly checking if you look at it in terms of a, a emotional um, <coughs> I wonder if I have I don't. Um, a spiritual maturity um, the first line is that you recognize that your mind state is different than other people's mind states. That you're, you're not universally experiencing the thing that's happening and that everybody is also experiencing it that way. That's very early. And then the second is, is your perception of what's happening accurate or not? And that, that's this process of rocking into the sensing experience and knowing what you're sensing and then seeing what you've made the sensing experience into and then coming back into the sensing experience and understanding that you can rely on the sensing experience but you can't rely on what you make it into because you could distort it in an unlimited number of ways and then coming back into the sensing experience and seeing whether it's reflective the thing you make it in is actually accurately reflecting what the sensing experience is or if it's distorted. So, yeah. hmm? so the ultimate reality of being in a hyperactive state is that there's just extra stimulation effectively. Right, that the mind is... So when we talk about hyper, uh, the hyperarousal that's related to attachment, we are n what, what's happening is that we're in high gear around proximity seeking. That's, that's actually what's happening. Um, even though you may distort it into the other person not doing something right and you needing to make them urgently do it right so that you'll be safe, that may be what your perception is. But actually all that's happening is that the attachment mechanism has gone off and you need immediate proximity so that you'll feel safe. So 
what would be better is to say nothing and just sit next to them and put their arm around you and sit there for 20 minutes so the mind can turn off because all of the representations that the mind is making about what you need aren't real. What's real is that your brain is saying, I need immediate proximity so I won't be killed. Closest to person. Literal physical proximity is what you need to shut down the hyperactivation and it doesn't matter what the content is. You could make a deal with somebody that, I'm just going to snuggle up and put your arm around me and I'm not going to say anything for 20 minutes and we'll be much happier if you let me do that. It's why the other person might let you do that, right? Because they won't have to address all of the, uh, the stuff that you demand of them just so that you can be sitting under their arm for 20 minutes. Which is going to pass anyway. Right. <laughs> yeah. yeah, but it could pass quicker. Well, physical proximity, that's coming in through the body and addressing what's actually happening, not addressing the thing that you've made it into that isn't real. Mm-hmm. But you could presumably, eventually, you don't need the physical, you know, as you become aware enough, you don't need the physical proximity either. The whole process becomes more transparent to you. I'm not actually so sure about that. Um, what well, it's the, the same s- as emotion, I think it, it would. You know, the skillful means is that you recognize that you need proximity, not that you can get your brain to completely regrow into a brain that doesn't hyperactivate. Isn't that what awakening is all about? Um, transcending we what is? We don't want to have this, we don't want to have to work so hard at this stuff. We want, that's what I like. Yeah, it becomes totally easier to just sit next to somebody and put their arm around you without having to say anything, which is quite different. If they're willing to cooperate. Totally, and that's why you need to make deals with people (laughs) for care, right? We're householders, we're not monastics. You know, you know, the first thing that uh, that the Sado says when he's talking about what it what it is to be in a monastery is that you have to sever all relationships with anyone outside of the monastery and make new connections only with monastics. That's the deal. Because otherwise the mind is completely uh, engaged in relationships that you don't have access to. So it's, it's continuously distressing for that. You know, we live, we're herd animals, we're meant to live in relationships. We need to uh, understand that we need to put a lot of energy into having the people around us that we need around us so that we're well taken care of. The thing that you have to offer to people in order for them to be willing to do that for you is taking care of them. So you have to understand that you have to take care of somebody. If you're putting a lot of energy into taking care of somebody and they don't take care of you, in return you burn out. That's that link to paying attention. This is supposed to be mutual and it's supposed to be reliable. If somebody doesn't provide mutual care, mutual is different than equal in the sense that they need to take care of you in a way that's meaningful to you, even if it doesn't have meaning to them. And you need to take care of them in a way that's meaningful to them, even if it doesn't mean anything to you. And I always use the example of Blake. Blake likes to talk for 15 minutes at the end of the night. And I'm a total peace out. You don't even have to say goodbye to me and I'm okay. But with him, if I don't spend 15 minutes talking to him at the end of the night, he'll call me in two days and want to know what happened, what's wrong. And he'll have been perseverating for two days trying to figure out what went wrong and nothing went wrong for me because I don't need that. Is that making sense? Yes, I'm still not convinced that if, that if self really drops off, you know, really drops off, and it ultimately drops off to the point that there is no self, there's no self-referential narrative going on, all the time, all the, there simply is no self in the way we think of self present, and that, and that everything that's being do is just happening. There's a doer, but there's no self doing it. And then these things go with self. They go with self. 
it's gone, they're gone. I think, I mean, for me, being that we live in a social environment, it was true and no self. You wouldn't even have to move There's. Well, yeah. Again, yeah, there's a whole debate and you know, a whole discussion around this. It would take a night, but that's impermanent. That's the piece that I'm hearing you say uh, that it's permanent. Yeah, that these things permanent. become permanent, and they they don't. They become impermanent, like everything else. So the self comes and goes. <clears throat> so we never quite get to a state until we get old and sick and we die. <laughs> well, that doesn't happen. It is a. It is maybe. Uh, um, it, it reminds me of the reason that I started practicing in the first place was because I wanted to be enlightened, and what enlightenment meant to me was that I would never have another problem. Mm-hmm. And that isn't actually. No, I'm not what I'm no problems. Right. It's the response to problems. Yeah, totally. But you need to be able to manifest the sense of self. It's not that there's never a manifestation of the sense of self. It's that would be a preference, wouldn't it, for, for just being in the no-self experience. One of the reasons that I like the attachment stuff is it's a, it's a description of the relationships based on conditioning and this mm-hmm. empirical investigation of what... You do this to a child, they come out like that, and it's pretty direct, right? You can see it. So that even though in the crucial periods uh, none of us really remember what happens to us, we can infer because it's such a direct line and it's so predictable what must have happened. And what I find really useful about that is that it defines the way that you need to practice in order to relieve the conditioning around that. If you don't have a hyperactivating mind, you don't need to learn any skills to address a hyperactivating mind. It's just the same as we were talking about at the beginning of this. If you have a deactivating mind, the skills for relieving a hyperactivating mind won't help. You have to learn the skills for a deactivating mind to reactivate it. And you have to be able to recognize the mind state that's there. Because if you don't recognize that you've deactivated, when the mind says to you that this relationship has no meaning to me, I can totally trash it, you will believe it and then you'll engage in the action that creates the karma that totally trashes the relationship. And then when the mind reactivates, you'll realize that this is a deeply meaningful relationship to you and you will see that you've just totally trashed it. Where were you when I needed you? (laughs) (laughs) Drunk. (laughs) On the floor of some nice club. get something on the way. You don't have to wait for all of the goodies. To well, come you, you can shift your relationships into a secure place and then you actually have a base to go deeply into the Vipassana which can be very uh, disruptive. Alright, we have to meditate. Or questions about what we did this this evening? When I'm like um, a two, when I'm experiencing sensation in my body, which is mostly what happens when I sit, um, when I'm really following it, which happens a lot, I just it's like it's like trying to find language for it's like I have to re- I have to drop out of it in order to know and sometimes I just it's like reaching up onto a shelf and like try it's like I don't even have words for it and the division of see here feel isn't operative it's 
No, not in that. I have to. I have to stop really feeling that sensation to come out of it and to be like that was that. But then I don't forget to follow what's there. Right. And so I struggle with because it's a choice, but it's a lot harder for me to step out of it and to make a note than to just stay with it. Okay. So, noting and labeling. Um, two different things, and then rhythmic noting, and just um, um, funny. the language for the other noting isn't coming. <laughs> so there's rhythmic noting, and there's just freely moving noting. Right. With freely moving noting, you soak in, and then you stay in, and yeah. then you come out. But actually what it typically is, is you you know where your attention is gone, you label that, and you stay into this experience until the mind moves to the next one, and then you note that. So that may be a better way for you to do it than the rhythmic noting. The upside of that one is that you really do stay in and soak into the experience much longer, maybe more deeply. Uh, but also, if you get caught up into thinking and space out, you're, you, you can be spaced out for much longer periods of time. With the rhythmic noting, the noting alerts you when you've gotten caught up or alerts you that your attention is wandering and not actually matching the labels. So you tend to spend less time caught up. But there's no real preference. It's just the one that works better. Sometimes the, 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 the the back and forth can be so fast that you don't have time to create a label, so that you, then you're just noting. There's no label in it because there isn't time. So noting is just the sensation? Or noting is this back and forth between this is the sensation and this is what the sensation is, this is the sensation, this is what the sensation is, and then labeling is the see, hear, feel words that you generate in the mind. So wait, so it's like, so sorry, what's the difference between noting? Noting is just noting is the, the knowing and the sensing. Knowing, sensing, knowing, sensing. sensing. And oh, yes. uh, labeling is where you generate the word. See, hear, or feel in auditory thinking space. Because I'll sort of do like, if I'm sensing, and if it's anything other than neutral, then I will label it. But then I definitely, my attempt more to like, keep going further with labels is to attune myself to it until it becomes sort of, to keep it moving sort of, and then it's neutral again sort of. That makes sense. Do you, um, do you notice an awareness of whether the mind is concentrated or not? We, it was a short meditation, but mm -hmm. when the mind is concentrated, it's almost viscous in the way that it flows, at least mm -hmm. my experience of it, from one object to mm -hmm. the next. There can be lots of popping of other sensations happening, but the concentration keeps yeah. you in, mm -hmm. in place. Um, and then the, it flows from one to the next. Right. And then typically that's slow enough, at least lately from my practice, that it's easy to uh, have clarity around that. But it can speed up to... Yeah, that's the thought. Incredibly There's a thought can come and it can just totally pull me out or to hyperactivate and then right. and then noting helps but, right. but that happens the, the labeling or the noting right. the labeling <laughs> yeah, yeah. Labeling. Right. I'm using yeah. Them yeah, often for householders this is the end of the day It's the labeling can be like a turbo boost for your concentration keep you present because you're because uh, the mind is hearing it in a different area than it would by just noting Well, thank you for coming. Um, I have some flyers out here. This is actually the last day to register for the summer retreat in case you have a sudden impulse to go and haven't already registered. Um, uh, we're going to turn in the list tomorrow and the, the retreat center says that there can be no late additions. So we'll, this is our first time there, so we don't know how rigid that really is. On uh, July 1st, I'm going to be doing a, a half day here on the meditation interventions for the addiction process uh, strategy. And then we have two intensives starting. 
Um, we've because we're no longer at ATS and we can do whatever we want in terms of scheduling, which we, we couldn't do before, we're now offering the trainings in different levels. And so we're going to begin a level one training in both in, in interventions class and in the meaningful life class. And what that is, is an information and technique class rather than one that, that has a focus on repair and uh, mentoring. So the cost is quite low compared to what the classes usually are, and it's really around uh, uh, learning the techniques and the language of uh, attachment repair and um, or the language of attachment, and then also the language of relapse prevention. And uh, um, in March, we're going to start a level two training, which is oriented around. Uh, shifting relationship dynamics uh, to secure dynamics and then in uh, next August, not this one coming, we'll start a level three uh, training which is around actually shifting the deep conditioning so that the automatic res attachment responses are earned secure. You do have to take the level one training in order to come into the, the level two and three trainings. So uh, we will also start a, a level um, one training in March. Um, we hope to be in our own center, if not this one, a different one. Um, and so in March, we're going to begin the, the intensives on a monthly basis um, rather than just with uh, you know six months apart or something like that. But if you like the attachment stuff and, and uh, uh, the six month, twice a month classes is I think a good way to look at it anyway. The flyers are out there, take a look. The registration is open on the website. The classes here are offered on a Donna basis. The suggested Donna for the classes here are, is $20. But it is, Donna is the poly word for generosity, so it really is your practice of generosity. So if $20, doesn't feel like in a generous amount and contribute more if it feels like a good amount to that if it it's too much based on your resources give it a level that's appropriate but but do consider each time you come giving something so that you're engaged in the practice of Adana and we can keep this as an ongoing thing cash outside uh, I also put some um, bracelets out there if you want to have a transitionary object you can <laughs> grab one, and I can also take cards here. Thank you for coming.